We're living in very polarized times, you know. What one side sees as a thoughtful compromise, the other side sees as a cowardly sellout. One side says, holds a press conference and says, okay, here, here's a reasonable compromise to help solve this issue. Then the other side, they hold their own press conference and they say, no, that's an unreasonable, unconscionable sellout. We'll never go with it. Pick your issue, pick your side, compromise or sell out. Sometimes it's tough to tell the difference, isn't it? It's a, on a little league ball field in Portsmouth, a middle schooler, he's hitting the cover off the ball. A select team, a traveling team coach, he hears about this middle schooler and he goes to the ball field, he watches him play a little bit, he goes over to the parents and he tells the parents, your, your boy, he's really got some talent. We'd love for him to be a part of our traveling select team. You know, this could even lead to scholarships. He could go somewhere. It'll come at a cost though. I mean, he's going to have to practice every afternoon of the week. You're going to travel on weekends. You won't be able to do all those other extracurricular activities, all those other gatherings that you used to do. Compromise or sell out. Sometimes it's tough to tell the difference, isn't it? He's a businessman. He's talented. He's a smooth negotiator. He's, he's brokered some great deals for the company. And then the, the bosses take notice and they say, hey, we want to we give you a raise. We want to elevate your position. It's going to come with a hefty raise. But, you know, we're in a global economy now, so you're going to have to travel around the world. You're going you're to be traveling a lot, but you'll get used to it, they say. Traveling's fun. After all, aren't airports great? It'll come at a cost, though. You won't be around during the week for, with your family, and it'll come at a cost to your marriage. But here's the raise. Compromise or sellout. Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference, isn't it? The world says, yeah, you can be a Christian. We don't mind at all. Just practice Christianity, you know, in the comfort of your own house, however you'd like. Go to your place of worship, and that, that's great. Just don't, bring Christ, just don't bring Jesus out in the public square. Don't, don't bring him to the office. Don't bring him to the school. Don't, don't bring him out in the neighborhood. You just keep that to yourself. Compromise or sellout? Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference, isn't it? We aren't the first people to deal with this type of pressure. As Paul planted the church in Ephesus, they struggled with it. A lot of situations that you and I have had, they dealt with it even on a much grander scale. We're launching a new sermon series this morning where we travel with Paul through his last, his third missionary journey. So uh, it's, a, it's a sermon series titled The Unstoppable Church. It's really our last installment because we've kind of made our way through the book of Acts in chunks uh, this year. And we followed this church from infancy, how Jesus right at the birth of the church, before the church was even born, how he kind of gave the mission plan for the church. Hey, you're to be my witnesses. You're going to go into Jerusalem and then to all Judea and then to Samaria and then even to the ends of the earth. And so we've we followed this. And now Paul, he's a part of this third missionary journey, really going to the ends of the earth at that time. He's making his way toward Rome. 
Go ahead, turn with me this morning to Acts. We'll begin in Acts 18, verses 24 through 28. Acts chapter 18, beginning in verses 24 through 28. After his second missionary journey, Paul returned to Antioch. You may remember Antioch was the sending church for Paul. This was the church that commissioned Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas, you may remember, went and got Paul, said, hey, I need help with this church in Antioch. And so Paul comes, and together, Paul and Barnabas, they lead this church. And after some time passes, this church, this multi-ethnic, this this, uh, big church, a church focused on missions, this uh, really a beautiful church, uh, a picture of what the church ought to be, it commissions Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. And they go, and then after that, Barnabas isn't with them anymore. They had this disagreement over John Mark. And so Barnabas takes John Mark, and he goes off traveling, and they're doing missionary work. And Paul, he takes with him Silas, and then Timothy, and Luke, and they join. So he's off on his second missionary journey. And now as he starts his third missionary trip, where we're kind of re-entering the story here in Acts 18... He's first going to revisit some churches that he helped plant in Galatia and Phrygia on his first missionary trip. And then he'll make it to Ephesus. And he only planned to preach there for a couple of months, but he's going to end up staying there for over three years. And so that's really where we're going to spend our time this morning in Ephesus. So let's go ahead and read together Acts 18, verses 24 through 28. It says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Though he knew only of the baptism of John, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples, to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So this is at the start of Paul's third missionary journey, but at this time, Paul, he's still visiting churches in Galatia and Phrygia. He's not in Ephesus yet. But you see, work in Ephesus is already starting. To highlight what's going on and just kind of refresh some things here, Paul would later write in 2 Timothy chapter 2-2, I want you to remember this, Paul would later say, the things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these things to faithful men who will then be able to teach others also. So before Paul ever penned those words to Timothy, he'd already lived them out. He'd already modeled this to Timothy and and to the others. And so in Ephesus, Apollos is there. And Apollos, he's a Jew, he's got this enviable heritage, he's he's from Alexandria, Egypt. Um, Alexandria was a big university town at that time, just tons and tons of of works. In fact, um, It was estimated that at that time there were about one million Jews living in Alexandria, Egypt. 
in many of our Bibles that we read from this morning, the Alexandrian text family, many Jewish scribes wrote down copies of the New Testament, and we found a lot of manuscripts in Alexandria. So there's this whole text family that we call the Alexandrian text family. And so this is the place where where Apollos was raised in this university, highly educated town. And more than that, more than just this great background, Apollos, he was a dynamic speaker. He could really captivate a crowd. He was able to expertly reason from the Old Testament and just explain the Old Testament scriptures very well. And he was fervent in spirit, the text says. He's this passionate man, a guy who's just on the mood to start conversations and to engage people and to explain the Old Testament scriptures to people. A man of passion. Apollo, see, he had a lot going for him. He was a reliable, faithful man, but he was missing a few things. Apollos, he had only been acquainted with the baptism of John. You see, Apollos, Apollos, he only knew of a coming Messiah. He did not know that Jesus was the Messiah who had already come. And so he believed that the Messiah was coming, not that the Messiah had already come. He hadn't heard that part of the story yet. No one had stopped to tell him. Maybe no one knew. He didn't know that yet. It's not that his teaching was insincere or even inaccurate. It was simply that his teaching was incomplete, that he didn't know the rest of the story. It was missing the best part. The Messiah had already come. All those Old Testament prophecies and teachings had been fulfilled in Jesus. So there's Priscilla and Aquila. You may remember Paul met them on his second missionary trip in Corinth. Okay, he met, he met this, uh, this couple in Corinth. Aquila, he's a tent maker just like Paul. They're the same line of business. They had sat under Paul's teaching. They're an older couple. They're committed believers who really got a lot out of Paul. And then when Paul left Corinth and when he's traveling back towards the conclusion of his second missionary trip, he leaves Priscilla and Aquila. They join him. They get so excited by what Paul's going on that they leave their business, they leave their family, they join up with Paul, and Paul drops them off in Ephesus. So they're in Ephesus, Paul goes back to Antioch, and now here in Ephesus, Priscilla and Aquila, they hear Apollos teaching. And I kind of imagine that they must have shot each other a look, you know, thinking, well, this guy's good, but he's missing the best thing. I mean, he's got this right hook at the end that he can end with, and he's still leaving it as if it's yet to be fulfilled. And so they go to Apollos and they pull him aside. Notice that. They don't just talk about him. They don't just say, well, he's missing this. You know, it's too bad. He's got some talent, but if he just knew the rest. No, they go to him. They approach him, and they pull him aside and say, hey, can we train you a little bit? Can we teach you a few things? You know, all those prophecies that you're talking about in the Old Testament, you've got them all right, but let me tell you, they've been fulfilled. And Apollos, he demonstrates his humility by going along and saying, yes, train me. And so they train Apollos, and then Apollos, he reaches a time, he says, hey, I hear about all these people in Achaia, I want to go over there, and I want to tell them about Jesus. And Priscilla and Aquila, at that time, they realize, hey, you're ready. You're ready to go. You got our stamp of approval. We're going to write to the brothers over there, and we're going to say, hey, welcome this man. Allow him to preach. And so that's what happens. This 
is chair for Christian living, right? This is, did you watch the progression? Remember what Paul would later write to Timothy. You have heard, you, in this case, Priscilla and Aquila, have heard teaching from me, Paul. Now I want you to go find faithful men and teach them. That's going to be Apollos, who's then going to be able to teach other people also. And so this is what's happening. This is chair for disciple-making living, where it just gets multiplied and expounded. You see the exponential impact of disciple-making that's happening right here. Paul's not in Ephesus yet, but it doesn't matter. The disciples are still being exploded. Work is still happening because he's taught faithful people who then teach other faithful people who are then going and teaching more faithful people. This is an explosion of disciple making because faithful men and women of God are doing what God has called them to do. And sometimes we look at that and we say, wow, that's amazing. That's incredible. These are like the heroes of the faith. And they are, but what we tend to do is we want to bronze them and put them up in trophy cases like, wow, this is, this is so amazing that somebody would do that. But this is to be the norm of Christian living. This is what the Christian life is all about, to go and make disciples. This is what he's called us. All they're doing is living out what he's called them to do. But, but notice this for a moment. If just one person stops that chain, if Priscilla and Aquila just say, you know what, Paul's great at that. You know, he's a traveling evangelist. He's planting churches all over. You know, he's got this talent. But, you know, we're just an ordinary business couple. I mean, we, we make tents for a living. We can't possibly do that. Do you see how the explosion of disciple-making just stops? Because then Apollos, he's still teaching a Messiah who is to come because he doesn't know yet that the Messiah has come. All those people in Achaia, they don't hear because Apollos was never trained. If Apollos ever, ever heard from Priscilla and Aquila and just said, you know what, wow, that's really cool, These, this faithful couple here, they're sold out. I mean, they're, they're telling everybody, but me, you know, I'm, I'm just going to stick right here. What I've got, I've got my faithful following, and I, I can hold this crowd. But, you know, those people in Achaia, I don't feel like going over there. So you see, the disciple-making chain just stops in its tracks when people stop doing what God has called them, created them to do. This type of living should be the norm, where your fruit grows most on other people's trees. Grow your fruit on other people's trees. Because this is what Paul's doing. That he so knows his reason for being, that he's training other faithful men, faithful women, to be disciple makers also. That, and this is the whole saying that Jesus said, right? That you would bear fruit, more fruit, and much fruit. Go, make disciples, not converts, make disciples who are then able to make other disciples. See, Paul, he impacted a whole bunch of people. He planted a whole bunch of churches. But realize this, Paul impacted more people indirectly than he impacted directly. The, the chain of disciple-making that Paul started impacted more people 
than just the, just the people that he impacted directly. In fact, I believe that if we could somehow trace this disciple-making chain that Paul, that Paul just coming and going from Paul, that we would see that Paul is still growing fruit on other people's trees. That it's still happening because he has set off this line of disciple-makers that continues to this day. So, after Apollos had already left, after he's already gone to Achaia, then Paul does arrive in Ephesus. And he met other people in Ephesus, like Apollos, who believed the message of John the Baptist, who were looking forward to a coming Messiah, but they hadn't yet heard about Jesus. And so Paul, he's there in Ephesus now, and he's telling them the good news of Jesus. And they're coming, and they're being baptized, and they're receiving the Holy Spirit. And we see all this at the beginning of Acts chapter 19. And I'm going to move ahead now to verses 21 through 41 of Acts 19. And as we talk about that, I'll kind of rehash some of what I'm glossing over here. But Acts, 21, or Acts 19 verses 21 through 41. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to press through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying... After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having said into Macedonia, two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is a danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may be even deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel, but when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were his friends, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why the assembly had come together anyway. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis, and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are opened. And there are proconsuls. Let, let, 
them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. There was a great disturbance concerning the way, concerning the church. The power of God's presence was so much that the world pushed back. I want to remind you just a few things about the book of Acts, as we, uh, some background information that I think is helpful. We believe that the book of Acts was written by Luke as a court brief. Okay? It was written as a defense of Paul as he was facing charges in Rome. And, and, and Luke wrote uh, the gospel of Luke and then also the book of Acts to show that the gospel was not a political threat to show that Paul's teaching was not a political threat to the empire, that the teaching of Jesus uh, could be done within the realm of society, could be done in, in the realm of the Roman Empire, and that everything would be okay, that Jesus didn't have any political aspirations. Jesus wasn't trying to be some kind of Roman king or Roman emperor. He had refused the crown. He, did, he didn't want that. That Jesus was there just to prove that he is Lord and he is God, and during his first coming, he wanted to be seen as such. Now, Luke addressed uh, both of his books to Theophilus, okay, a man named Theophilus, or that wasn't really his, nick, his real name, it was a nickname. Theophilus, Theos, means God. Uh, phileo is the second was coming from, and so that means lover. So lover of God is this nickname that this man has. Most believe that he's a high-placed Roman official, a man of power and, and influence. And so just to use his real name could cause him some danger. But this high-placed Roman official who is a believer, but he needs some discipling. And he also wanted some help understanding Paul's message so that he could try to protect him from all these legal charges that are coming against uh, Paul. And so, for that reason, Luke, he follows Paul on the missionary journeys, not Barnabas, and, and he's providing just accounts, really, a lot of times, of the commotion and the, and the tension that, that comes along with these trips. Because what Luke is saying is, hey, you're hearing that Paul is bringing this about. It's not really Paul. It's not really... It's not really his teaching. You've heard about the riots in Ephesus, okay, uh, Theophilus, and I want to explain to you what really happened there, what really went on. See, this was an extraordinarily dangerous time. This is one of those times that Paul would later write, uh, and he would say that he felt as if his life was legitimately threatened. He described the people in Ephesus as a pack of wild dogs, as if he was wrestling with wild dogs in Ephesus, that it came that close, okay, for his life. And things transpired like this. Paul stayed in Ephesus. He only going for a couple months, ends up preaching for several years. He wrote letters to the Corinthians here from Ephesus, and Paul uses his typical strategy when he enters a town. He, he first goes to the synagogue and starts preaching to the Jews, then after that, then he goes just throughout the town, and he's, and he's preaching throughout the town of Ephesus, and he's preaching that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. 
And the crowds are hearing this. And significant numbers of people are responding to the message. Not just people from Ephesus, but people from all over. Because many people travel to Ephesus, especially to see the great temple of Artemis. Paul always looked for strategic cities. Cities of, of influence and intersection. Okay, cities where a lot of people were coming through and traveling through and then they would end up going back home. Cities of influence that were leaders in culture and artistry and military and commerce and places like this. And so Ephesus, it was the major city in the province of Asia. So this message is spreading throughout Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. And Paul was having so much success there that if you go back and you look at the early part of chapter 19, people are taking claws that Paul had touched or that his shadow had passed over or something like that. And they would take a cloth back home and they would put it on a sick person and that sick person would be made well. And we're seeing things like this, and some things that sometimes we scratch our heads at a little bit, we just say, wow, that's amazing, and that's incredible, that's such a powerful witness, a lot of people's lives are being changed. And we're also told, though, that a lot of people, they stop believing in magic at this time. Now, magic in Asia Minor is not just like pulling a rabbit out of a hat, okay? It's a different kind of magic altogether. I, want you, I don't want you to feel bad if you go and you see some illusionist like make a 747 disappear, okay? That's not the magic that's talking about there. That's just illusion. That's just kind of fun. But this magic was different. This magic was always done to control the gods and, in essence, to control the future, to say that we now have power over the gods, we're controlling them, telling them what's going to happen, what they can do, so that the future can be controlled. And this type of magic is still practiced in some places today. Uh, we've discovered a long list of just incantations and things like this, this type of, of magic that, you know, if you want to have a successful business, you go to a magician and he would say certain words in a certain way and then, hey, you're guaranteed the gods will shine their favor on you, you'll have a successful business. You want to have a happy marriage, you go, you ask the magician, he pronounces the words in just the right way and boom, you're going to have a happy marriage. You're sick, same thing. You go to the magician and, and he says something because the spirits have to respond. The gods have to respond when you say it just right in just the right way. This is the type of magic that was being practiced. You know, this thinking can even be adopted sometimes by Christians, though, even, even today. That people sometimes, when we really get desperate in our prayer life, that, hey, if I can just phrase it the right way. If I can just string together the right set of words, then God will respond. He will do something. Hang on just for a second. Sometimes we get confused that God is here to serve us. We are here to serve him. And we can't get that backwards. Don't, don't get that messed up. God is not here to serve us. We are here to serve God. And you can ask God. You can implore God. You can question God. We saw that with Habakkuk the other week, right? You can question God. You just can't tell God. You, you don't get to give God the marching orders, okay? God has given us the marching orders. See, if you're giving God the marching orders, then God isn't really God at all. So that's what the magic was all about. 
that they're taking control and they're, they're the ones really in charge and people learn that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so they start burning their magic books, start burning all these incantations. The Bible says that they burned over 50,000 denarii worth of magic books. Now that may not mean much to you, it didn't really mean much to me either. And then I looked and it said that a denarii was equal to a day's wage. So they burned over 50,000 days wages that it would cost to buy all these magic books. That's how much material they burned. And so things are getting serious in Ephesus. Okay, things are getting very serious. Why? Because people are losing money. Demetrius is losing money. He tries to hide it in religious terms. You know, oh, Artemis, it's all about this. It's all about Artemis. Over and over, he will say, great is the goddess of Artemis. And he's being attacked by Paul. And, and our goddess, she's going to lose her magnificence. This is hurting business. See, if Paul keeps on preaching, Demetrius is saying, we're going out of business. This is not good. He tries to cloak it behind religion. But it's not religion. The real issue is Demetrius is losing money. The great temple of Artemis was in Ephesus. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And so if you were alive during that time, if you had a bucket list, I mean, this would be on your bucket list. This would be one of the places that you'd want to go see and you'd want to check it out. And if you, if you went to Ephesus and you went to the temple, this great temple of Artemis, you'd, you'd go in and you'd worship there. And then as you left, you'd buy a little silver statue. It would be a token, be a reminder that, hey, the, the goddess Artemis, her presence is now with me and it would encourage you to worship. And what happened was people hear Paul's teaching and they stop buying the little statues. They stop buying the, the little goddesses. And Demetrius and his friends, they made those little silver statues. It earned them a good living. And now Paul is preaching that gods made by human hands aren't really gods at all. And you can imagine what that get, did for business. So all those little silver statues, they're not gods anymore. And so Demetrius, being the leader of the silver silversmiths, he does what any great labor leader does when business starts to tank. He just starts a riot. He gets people all worked up. He, he grabs everybody into protest. There's mass confusion. Some people, they don't even know why they're there. Did you catch that? We, we don't even know why we're here. Maybe there's going to be food or something, but hey, we'll protest. And they're just shouting for two hours at one point, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Think about that for two hours. He has them worked up into such an emotional fury that things get dangerous. And Alexander, he's a Jewish leader, and he tries to speak out, but he's shouted down. Paul, of course, he sees this crowd in the theater and all these people, and he wants to go there because he wants to preach. I mean, he's an evangelist. He says, let me, let me go. I, I got a message for him. I want to go preach to him. And his friends and the, other, and the other leaders in the city say, Paul, it's not safe. They're having to hold him back. No, Paul, you can't, you can't do that. It's too dangerous. See, this is becoming a riot. And the thing that Rome feared more than anything else were riots. Rome would do anything to stop a riot with the most brutal force that they had because they wanted to make sure that no one in their kingdom ever stepped out of line. They wanted to make sure that everyone knew who was in charge. And so the leaders of Ephesus, they get afraid. 
in their panic because they know that if the Roman army hears about this and they get upset, that they're going to feel threatened and that they're going to come in and they're going to take care of business. And so they begin to tell people, hey, you got issues. Okay, there's, there's legal recourses for all of this. You, you're, you're upset with Paul. That's fine. You want to bring a charge against them. You know, there's a court process. Just file charges. Go through it that way. You don't like our laws? Okay, take it to the assembly. We can, we can see if there's a law that needs to be changed. But there's a right way to do this and a wrong way to do this. So let's handle things the right way. Go home. Calm down. And so everybody goes home. Now remember, Luke wrote this story. He, he's including this as a court brief to demonstrate to Theophilus that Paul's not a danger. But the reality was the gospel was a danger. That the gospel really was a danger because the gospel is co- costing the city money. You can do a lot of things, but when you start affecting people's money, there's issues, right? And so why was Demetrius so worried? Why do we get so sensitive about money? Because more than anything else, money shows your heart. Money shows your heart. That's why Jesus talked about money more than he talked about anything else. But you you can tell people all you want, hey, these are the values I had, this is what I believe in, all, all this stuff. You show someone how you spend your money, they can tell you what you really value. It becomes real evident, real quick, what's important to you. Your spending habits display your values. You spend money on what's important to you. And Demetrius, he's saying, all this Jesus stuff, it's costing us money. And that's what makes it so dangerous. Not only is it costing them money, Demetrius says, hey, this is going to cost the whole city of Ephesus money. People are going to stop traveling here. You know, people are coming throughout Asia Minor to see the great temple of our goddess Artemis. They're, they're going to stop coming. What happens when the whole city and the whole area realizes that gods made by human hands aren't gods at all? What happens when they believe Paul's message? It's not just going to hurt us. It's going to hurt all of you, too. How dangerous would this be to their economy? And so that's why they pushed back. It wasn't religion. It wasn't devotion, loyalty to Artemis. It was cash. And so Luke says to his friend Theophilus, the real issue here in Ephesus was cash. You see, the gospel affects everything. It affects your money It affects your relationships. It affects your priorities. And so this is why the gospel is dangerous. We know it. The world knows it. That's why sometimes we realize how dangerous the gospel is. So sometimes, hey, we want to be a Christian. We want to love Jesus. That's all important. That's really good. But we'd rather sometimes just keep it to ourselves or to give it out in small doses you know, because there's, there's a line where you can be a Christian, you can love Jesus, but then you can be a nut about it. You know what I mean? I'm just telling you how, how, how it is. And we can kind of draw that line sometimes. Well, just don't be a nut about it. Don't, don't be crazy about it. Because when you cross over into nut land, 
That's when problems start. You know, then, then it really does start affecting your, your cash. Then it really does start affecting all the people that you meet. And then it, it just comes out of you all the time and it starts affecting things. You get labeled, you know. And so we all kind of have that line. Christian and nut. I have a friend. He's a pastor. He pastored a large church in Arkansas. And his whole family went there. I mean, his, his, uh, his parents, his in-laws, brothers, sisters, nieces, nephews, cousins, he, the whole family was going there. His large church took a trip out to Seattle. He, he saw just the darkness of the city, complete lack of faith in the city of Seattle. He left this large church all his family behind, and he went to plant a church in downtown Seattle. People thought he was a nut. I asked him, I said, how could you do that? How, how are you able just to leave everything behind and go? He said, Steve, the dream was never to pastor a large church. The dream was never to be close to family. The dream was always to serve Jesus the best way I can. I know a missionary family, they've packed up, they moved over to a third world country. Their family looks at them and says, how could you leave us? You know how hard it is to get over there to see you? We're never going to see you now. It's dangerous there. You're putting your family in, in harm's way. This, this is not a safe country to live in. They think they're nuts. And they think... How can we do anything else? We value serving our Lord more than we value our safety. We value serving our Lord more than we value being close to family. Christian or nut? So what happens when the church wakes up and just says, you know, I don't want the world to define me anymore. That Jesus has already told me who I am, and I don't need any more validation because what he says is true. What happens if we look to Jesus and we just say, you know, I'm going to be like Paul. I'm going to sell out. I'm going to go all the way into Nutland and just start making disciples as best I can. It's not going to be perfect. I'm never going to make a disciple who looks just like Jesus, but I'm going to push the ball down the field a little bit. I'm going to try to make disciples who can make disciples. The world will push back, you know, just like they did in Ephesus. It'll push back on you too, maybe even from family like some of my friends have experienced. There are some places already right now, you know, where teachers can't wear crosses to school, where coaches can't pray before a football game, where employees can't put a Bible on their desk. Compromise or sell out. Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. And be careful because it comes incrementally. Small choices, small decisions. And before you know it, you're hiding. You're hiding so far that if anyone came looking for a Christian, that they would never pick you. Compromise or sell out. 
Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that through Jesus Christ, our sins can be forgiven. That he sold out 100% for us when we were your enemies, when we were dead in our sin. So God, in a world that pushes back, in a world that can be difficult, in a world where small choices come at us every day, give us the wisdom on how to act, how to live, on when it's right to be held back like Paul. But God, give us that fervor, that passion, just to sell out, that the world will never have to ask us twice if we're a Christian or not. Help us to have conversations like that this week where we're able to share Jesus and impact people. We ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.